Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is uh, episode 136 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 136, we are going to basically just talk about the meet that just was. uh, The International Open Championships, the very first IOC uh, in recorded history that took place last week, uh, Tuesday through Thursday, on the very beautiful campus of Seattle Pacific University, which is shockingly and unexpectedly in Seattle. So we're going to talk a little bit about the the meet, uh, what happened, some retrospectives of what was there, and then um, I'm going to share some observations about the quizzing itself, um, and uh, some good things and some maybe not good things. And uh, then we'll talk about some of the proposed uh, 2.0 rule changes that came out of both things that we sort of were expecting we needed to change for the last couple months, but didn't in the rules because we wanted to keep a stable rule book uh, leading up to the meet. Um, And then there were also some things that we learned uh, well, through conversations and other things at the meet itself that we uh, may want to uh, pull back into the rule book a little bit and make some changes there. So I'll talk about some of these proposals. None of them are official. This is just things that have uh, come out of conversations at the meet. Uh, and so things that are kind of in the churning process f- that may go into the rules. We're going to try eventually. Uh, it may not happen super rapidly because CBQ is a, an entirely new system, but the goal is to get to a universe where the rulebook does not change for an entire season. So basically starting with Gipka in the fall, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, starting in the fall, September, October-ish, uh, theoretically our goal is to have the rulebook not change through the entire season, but we may have to make a minor adjustment here and there. We will only do so if absolutely necessary, or if we can see some, some sort of direct missional improvement there. Uh, because we definitely don't want to have churn uh, in the rules uh, when we're when we're mid-season and uh, leading up to especially a championship quiz like that. All right, so let's talk about IOC. So some of my thoughts about IOC. So I was able to attend. Scott was not able to attend. Uh, so he's going to be asking me some questions and also taking us on different journeys of meets of the past from his perspective as well. So, I mean, the first thing I want to talk about is that SPU was just a really lovely location. Uh, visually, it's a beautiful campus. Uh, the they, they keep it very well maintained. The buildings are beautiful. The landscaping is beautiful. And the weather was fantastic as well. I mean, we, we had some... Typical Seattle overcast the first that that the day before the meet that Monday afternoon evening. But at the three days of the meet itself, we had blue skies and occasionally some wispy clouds here and there. So it was quite nice and it wasn't particularly hot. And of course, Seattle is not humid usually. So it was just it was absolutely beautiful weather. I think we had up mid to upper 70s most of the days, 75, 76, I think uh, in Fahrenheit. Sorry, Canadians. Uh, but uh, it just it was it was really beautiful, and of course Seattle Pacific University uh, provided food for us, and the food was outstanding. I mean, in terms of I mean, it wasn't like a five star meal or anything like that, but in terms of you know campus, uh, uh, what's it called, cafeteria food, it was quite good. Uh, so 
I was really happy about that. And uh, it seemed like everybody else was, was pretty decently happy about the food. So that was fantastic. We had 14 teams uh, quizzing with us. Most were from the greater Pacific Northwest area. We had some teams flying in. I think the, f- the team that flew in the furthest was uh, from, the, uh, from New York State, uh, I think from the Syracuse area, uh, give or take a little bit. And um, we had a lot of teams coming in from Oregon, which was fantastic. And of course, some some local Washington teams as well. So we had 14 teams. We were spread across two rooms and across three days. So there was, as a result of that, there was actually quite a lot of downtime, uh, you know, between quizzes. So you had a fair amount of buys. So we structured the meet such that uh, there would be some breaks uh, intentional breaks for everybody all at the same time so that we could do things like laser tag together or the talent show or other sort of activities uh, throughout the course of those three days. But even because of some of the downtime just within the actual period of quizzing, the various buys that some teams had, some teams took that to their advantage. So uh, there was one team from out of state. I, I think it was one of, uh, one of the teams that uh, flew in they uh, loaded up into their rental vehicle and went to the Space Needle uh, between, uh, not to go up into the Space Needle or anything, but just to drive up to it and I guess go up and <laughs> touch one of the support beams or something. Uh, but the idea is, you know, they were they were in town. They, they thought this would be a great touristy thing. And they had uh, about, an, I think about an hour, hour and a half to be able to go down and do that and come back with, uh, between quizzes. But generally speaking, I think there was probably a little bit too much downtime. I think in the future, I probably should have planned for three rooms and a little bit more compressing of, uh, so fewer buys and having more structured downtime where everybody was down. Um, because I think, I think the buys were a little bit too strong and too interruptive. So it was useful for people to be able to hang out and fellowship with each other and build uh, friendships and so forth. But I think it was probably a little it, on balance. It was probably a little bit too much in that direction. Um, but um, yeah, curious if there were folks who felt otherwise, uh, if you could let me know, that would be useful for future meat planning. Uh, the quizzers seemed to enjoy the meat a lot. Uh, we had the first two rounds were practice quizzes because the CBQ system is, you know, completely new to everybody or, well, it, it's new to everybody at, you know, at the scale of a meet of IOC. There were some teams that had been practicing with it and others who had gone to a mini meet prior. Uh, so they had some exposure to it, some experience to it. But in terms of a meet of the size and scope of IOC, it was new for everybody. So we had first couple of rounds were practice quizzes. And then by the first official quiz, it seemed like everyone had a reasonable grasp on the rules. I think there were some cases where some questions came up afterward, but we answered them on the spot. I think room two may have struggled a little bit more with this. Uh, I was able, I had a cheat code because I wrote the rule book. So it was pretty easy for me to answer rules questions just on the fly. Um, But I think it generally speaking went pretty well in terms of just flow uh, and, and dealing with the whole system as a new system. I, I got a lot of positive feedback from a lot of the different teams in terms of you know, things that they liked about the new system. Now, that being said, that selection bias um, 
most people who have, let's say, constructive criticism generally don't share their constructive criticism. So I need to be aware of that, that it may not have been completely all rainbows and butterflies, but I just heard lots of rainbows and butterflies. So that was a positive thing. And like I said, we had a laser a laser tag uh, event. We had ultimate frisbee and ultimate football and various different lawn games. And there was a talent show, which was um, a little bit small but very funny. There were some really interesting, <laughs> very as talent shows tend to be at these sort of events. Uh, some of the acts were really hysterical. And then, of course, uh, some great downtime in the dorm uh, lounge, the dormitory uh, lounge of the residence hall uh, after after dinner most evenings. There were chessboards that got set out and somebody brought some card games and other, other games. We played a game called Cards Christians Like. And so uh, John Foley, uh, I don't think he actually won, but he definitely dominated the early game there. Uh, played quite well and so it was uh, and and of course fun was had by all and in some cases um, we were laughing so hard we started crying so <laughs> it was it was a, a very good experience there so uh, yeah nothing particularly unique there or exciting but uh, well I mean all of it was exciting but I mean uh, shocking in terms of of revelations for the show but I do want to go through some observations that I had about the quizzing itself at IOC. So uh, I'll talk about some of the good things and then maybe about some of the not so good things. So the first thing that I noticed is that some teams, not all, but some teams put together finish lists and did quite well with open book finish responses. So finish is one of those, there's, there's four base query types, right? So there's a phrase, chapter, uh, quote and finish. Quote is basically you're, you're just getting the reference, right? And so certainly if you've got reference material, you can open book a quote, no problem. It's really straightforward. With finishes, if you prepare a finish list ahead of time, or if your material has a finish list already for you, then you can you can pick up some open book uh, finish responses. You do have to time you're triggering carefully because you need to be able to have enough to be able to identify in, in whatever translation the query happens to be coming from, but you can get fairly snappy responses on, on finish list. Interestingly enough, it did not seem to me that the finishes were getting picked off by foreign translation open book quizzers necessarily. I think it was a fairly even distribution between uh, local translation and foreign translation. I haven't studied the the statistics yet, but it seems like that was the case um, to me. And that was a little bit surprising. I was expecting more teams to come up with Finnish lists for um, uh, Finnish queries and, and really push the envelope on open booking them uh, on their responses. That being said, there may have t been teams that did that and chose not to really push the envelope there just because it would pull too many opportunities for points gathering uh, out of the net. So for example, like there were some teams that uh, there was a team of two quizzers who both of the quizzers were quite good and I can, they were occasionally... Uh, both of those quizzers, I think, answered an open book query from time to time. But for the most part, they tried to stay away from open book 
uh, and I suspect that was because of uh, points opportunities, being able to leave too many points on the table uh, if you go after open book. So, Scott, any any sort of reflections or thoughts on any of this stuff so far? I find it, I would have loved to be there because it was the first time, and it would have been so interesting to see the different strategies or no strategy that different teams and quizzers employed. Because everyone's kind of, it's like playing a new game for the first time with friends and all of you are kind of trying to figure out the optimal strategy at the same time. Um, so yeah. And it's not surprising to me to not want to go after open book as much as you can. Cause it seems like such a hard ceiling on your points. Um, and so the only time that open book really makes sense is if you're, I don't know, it might only make sense if you're the underdog and you're really worried about the other teams taking all 12 queries or a majority of them, and you want to almost limit their opportunities. Um, but if you're any good yourself, it seems like Open Book is just going to um, bring down your point ceiling quite drastically. Yeah, it, it, it certainly does do that. I think it's useful... It's a useful strategy, mostly for people who are weaker. The only time I think I could see an advantage to going after open book would be to pull a query away from a team that you think that team is going to be able to pull a seven out of that query, right? So, uh, for example, if you're an NIV team, you're facing off against an ESV team, you know that ESV team is particularly strong, and an ESV finish comes up, uh, it may be really wise to try to just go fast and, and get the open book on it, right? Now, if an ESV phrase comes up, like, don't go fast, right? <laughs> like, like you cannot, you can't realistically open book uh, a foreign translation phrase. In fact, it would be very difficult to open book a native uh, translation phrase as well. So based on the query type, those sort of circumstances will come into play. Where I saw this happen most effectively was there were a couple of teams that had learned about the rules ahead of time and made a conscious choice that, well, we we know certain quizzers on our team are going to be stronger than others. Some are going to be weaker than others in terms of their memorization capability. And so they set up uh, lists that, uh, that they could use for open book, and they would share questions in such a way that they, uh, based on certain distributions of the base types, they would go after, say, finishes or quotes that were in a row so that they could pick up the follow-on bonus. And so they were things like, uh, there were times where there was one particular team where you would see one of them get an open book query and then the next one get an open book query and they would just kind of go back and forth until until they hit their ceilings. And you would see them rack up things like the follow-on bonus and the, f the second and third quizzer bonus. And that they did that very effectively. And it's, um, yes, it certainly hurt them from a total points perspective, but they made the calculation that in certain circumstances, them getting the one plus one or uh, one plus three, depending upon what how they were doing it, uh, points was going to be better than if they were attempting, say, a synonymous 
based on recognition or something else, based on on where what where, what the team members were uh, in terms of their strength of memorization. That strategy makes sense for points maximization for that team. Were they? I'm guessing they were not winning most of the quizzes that they were participating in. So interestingly enough, that team was, I believe, the strongest team of the meet in terms of total number of points that they were making, because essentially they had one quizzer who was just dominant in terms of memorization capability, very frequently getting four sevens or like three sevens and a six across their four queries or something like that. And then the other two members of the team were picking up open book uh, queries. So would the team have been as strong only because of the open book activity? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Um, certainly not. Right. Um, I think they vaulted into first place because of the, you know, this, I'll call it the seven quizzer, you know, the, the, the quizzer that was routinely picking up sevens. But what was interesting to me is I think the team made a conscious choice. Actually, I'm very confident the team made a conscious choice prior to the meet that this was how they were going to go after uh, queries uh, as a team, and there there was very clearly a conscious choice to share queries. So it wasn't like one quiz. The, their number one quizzer was dominating the query grabbing. They were actually sharing queries amongst the three of them, and the other two que- uh, quizzers were uh, picking up open. They were attempting to do synonymous, but when they couldn't, they would they would very quickly go to open book and be able to to pick up some points that way. And I thought it was, um, I think they made that choice based on a self, an accurate self-reflection of their preparation uh, and their capabilities uh, coming into the meet. And I think it worked out quite well for them. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like they very, they assess themselves extremely, extremely well because teams can be only up to three, right? Right. So even if you do open book for all three of your quizzes with perfect cycling, what what's that a maximum of? So let's see a perfect cycling. So uh, and and the three quizzers. So you're going to have two per. Uh, so two per at one each. So that's six points total. But then you're going to get the second and third quizzer bonus. So that's um, plus three. So that's nine. And then you've eight, got eight add-ons. Yeah, eight add-ons. So. Yeah, you're talking about um, 17 uh, points. So 17 points in nine queries is actually probably fairly sustainable to win even just that. You do have to pull it off perfectly, but I would imagine that the average points scored, even among good teams, is less than 17 divided by three. Yeah, it was less than 17 divided by three. You have to pull it off perfectly, and then the risk is in the queries that you don't in the remaining three queries another team could pick off you know a couple of sevens and come awfully close to where you are right so it's you you have to be able to do it you have to do it perfectly and it is in in theory possible but in some cases very very difficult right so like is it is it easy to open book a quote query yes absolutely is it with list prep is it easy to pick off a finish open book yes chapters it's like well is it possible to pick off a chapter uh, query open book i think it is but it's difficult because the problem is you have to like 
like you need enough to be able to figure out where within the chapter it is or you speed read the chapter and it's possible but that happened a few times and i think on on balance most of the time uh resulted in incorrect responses because say the you know if the if the verse comes from say verse 28 or something like that where do you start do you start on verse one and just blitz through there was one time there was one time in particular there was a team that jumped open book on a chapter query that was from like a 27 28 something in that ballpark 26 and they ended up starting quoting around 20 or say 25 but they could have just decided to start quoting around verse one or five or ten and they wouldn't have had enough time to be able to get up to that point now ultimately they did get to the point where they ran through the verse in their speed quoting they were able to pick up the one point but other times you're not so with with chapter it's like yeah it's possible but it's risky but then go to phrase it's downright nearly impossible uh to be able to do that and and that's even if you're talking about local translation if you're talking about including foreign translation then i i i feel like phrases are almost impossible to pick up uh open book right so i think it still does bring me back to like i think the fact that they had one quizzer who was in the running for sevens and quizzing out without air um paired with that back and forth strategy is almost almost perfect in a way because it's probably unlikely you're going to have three quizzers capable of getting sevens and quizzing out without air Right. Um, but I still think the strategy in general holds where you're trying to, for whatever level of study you've done, f- trying to figure out what is the maximum number of points that I can reliably get on a query and really only try to get those. Now, that could be open book for some quizzers, um, but for others, it might be synonymous um, with an occasional um, with reference or something, you know? Um, and I, I still think that's the optimal because you're right. You are kind of having to walk an extremely fine line to get um, all of those back and forth bonuses because without the back and forth bonuses, um, you're, you are just locking yourself into really small numbers of points. Right. Right. Well, I mean, imagine two sevens and uh, what, like a four or something and, or five uh, from the other team. And suddenly you're perfect run of open book has been collapsed right um and and i would say i I say again like i just i don't think a perfect run of of uh open book is even possible like when you're putting phrases into the mix i think you can certainly do it with with uh quotes and finishes and let's call it 40 percent of the time i think you can do it with chapters uh maybe better maybe more than 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 40 percent of the time but let's call it 50 50 on chapters but phrases forget about it so this theoretical that we had of whatever points we had 17 points i don't even think that's really viable i think it's probably south of that by a fair bit and then when you bring in foreign translations in foreign translations into the mix um i i think even even chapter becomes difficult um maybe not supremely difficult but but you know, drops the percentage down to maybe maybe forward into the forties or thirties or something like that. So, yeah, I think I think you definitely don't want to optimize for an open book first strategy. It's there though as a as a backstop, right? So and so and this is actually something that that I noticed from the meet. There were a fair number of folks at the meet who did not have strong material knowledge 
and yet we had almost no no triggers. I think we had like in my room in room one, I think we had like to the entire meet or something like that. And I think those no triggers happened at strategically intelligent times for those no, no triggers to happen, right? So nearly every query was attempted. And most of the time when the query was intelligently triggered on in terms of timing for speed timing, uh, the, the responses typically were correct. Um, the exception to that is open book, just because sometimes if you have enough information, it's sometimes still very difficult to look things up open book. If you don't have the verse at least partially memorized and there and you're using open book as a, as a, as a backstop for your memory knowledge, just looking up something raw can be, can be difficult. So here's a thought exercise. Um, I'm going to bring up the Pete Carroll Seahawks of their kind of peak, which was 2011 through 2016, they thought that they were the best football team in any matchup that they were in. And so they would do, they would try to run the football because it used more clock than passing the football. Cause the theory was they were shortening the game. So the number of plays that happened in a football game, they were shortening that because they felt that the only way a lesser opponent could beat them was by converting on a few high variance plays in a positive way, right? You can have high variance plays that are very negative, um, but you can have high variance plays that are positive. Um, and so the principle was if you're the better team, you want the field of play or the, the length of play to be as short as possible, um, which I'm trying to compare to like a golf tournament where the longer the holes are and the more holes you play, the more the best golfers are going to emerge at the end. So I'm trying to square those those two in my head and then also relate it to um, age three and how if you think you're the best team, you would want to take up as many queries as possible because you are limiting the high variance chances for a lesser opponent. Sort of. I think it's inverted slightly, right? So I think CBQ is, and and forgive this terrible analogy here, but I think CBQ with its point system is similar, although don't take the analogy too far. I think it's similar to if golf was everyone has one shot off the tee and whoever is closest to the hole wins, right? Based on on like points. So for example, instead of number of shots that you count, you're counting the number of inches away from the hole, right? And so you want to get as close to zero as possible, if not have a hole in one, which would be the equivalent of zero, right? But then everybody just gets one shot and per hole and that's it, right? So in that kind of a universe, uh, it doesn't, you, you actually want more holes if you're the better if you're the better player you actually want more holes than fewer right so if for example uh so you are a golfer i am not a golfer so it is fair to assume and i think it would be extremely likely to be the case that you are a substantially better golfer than i am so if you and i were to go play this game of cbq golf that i described I would actually want there to be like one hole and one hole only because I might get lucky right now. I'm not going to get lucky over the course of say 18 holes or, you know, 
100 holes or something like that. But if we're playing just one hole, maybe you slice your ball just on a freak occurrence. Maybe I just get super lucky on a freak occurrence and as a result, I can win, right? But if we play hole after hole after hole, my luck eventually has to revert to the mean, right? And and your performance ultimately has to revert to the mean or will revert to the mean, right? And so over the course of a lot of holes, it is highly improbable that I will ultimately have a better score than you, right? Does that make sense? That does make sense. So that would back up the strategy of max trying to maximize your points per query, even if that means fewer queries in total answered. I think it does. And I think it does. And and in practice at IOC, I think that, and again, anecdotal and probably not enough a sample size here, but I think that seems to be congruent with what we experienced. So the team, the, the, the best quizzer of the meet was not just going after four queries in a row, right? Uh, he was selecting queries strategically based on what seemed to make the most sense, where he was very clearly, very likely going to be able to pick off uh, sevens, right? Occasionally a six, but but typically sevens, right? And I think if that worked for other teams as well, teams that did uh, pretty well in the meet were going after queries, not in kind of a dominance of, I want to get my queries all at once, but rather picking off ones where they could they felt comfortable going after seven points or, or certainly higher numbers of points. So going after fours and fives, as opposed to twos, you know, these kind of things. Um, the, the flip side of it is, and this is something that, that I'll talk about a little bit in, in the bad sort of stuff. Um, I felt like there wasn't a, a universal awareness of just how painful an incorrect response really is because in CBQ there are no there there are no negative points for an incorrect response right you're not individually or team wise penalized in terms of your points but the other two teams or one team if it's already a toss up gets a B or C query and I don't think that was taken into account by a lot of people. I think there were, eh, I don't know, call it 50 to 60% of the teams where they thought of an error as, well, that doesn't hurt us at all. And it's like, well, it doesn't give you any negative points, but it provi- it kind of hands the other teams a golden opportunity to go after more points because they could slow down their triggering a little bit more to be able to still get the trigger get a little bit more information, have a higher probability of being able to get more points off of that. And uh, that that started to add up and become quite dangerous. I mean, that was always the strategy internationals was you tried extra hard, which sounds dumb because if you could just summon it, then you should do that all the time. But toss ups were the key thing because usually you have roughly 12 quizzers jumping at roughly the same speed. And so it's really hard to win a jump. Um, and when you have only eight quizzers jumping at a speed, um, it it did seem to play out that it was easier. Um, even though you would think that, I mean, it is the case that the fastest person is going to win the jump every time. Um, so it doesn't really matter if the other 11 jumped one millionth of a second slower. But it just seemed like toss-ups, you could get a, a tiny bit more information and still win the jump. Um, it would be 
I would love to have the data and see, you know, how successful were were the teams that both won the jump on and got correct the largest percentage of toss ups, and also who um, were participating in the largest percentage of toss ups. I think right. it, like I don't know if it was this way um, at IOC, but I know at internationals, it is just so scarce to win a jump and to win a jump on anything that you can get right. Um, and so a huge penalty of airing is you just lose a whole chance. It's just you, your chances of getting the next one right are absolutely zero. Um, and that's a massive deal. And it sounds like the teams might've underestimated that penalty. Um, and I don't know if it's human nature, but people focus on negative points, you know, where it's like, Oh, we have only, we have zero team errors, um, or one team error. And it's question 15, so we can burn an error. And, and, you know, I thought that at first as well. But then as time went on, I was like, well, if, we, if we're jumping at a rate that we have a 10% chance of getting it right, and we're not going to get a chance to jump on the next question, this is not a free air. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, so, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the good things, and then we'll go through some of the maybe negative things. But one, one thing that I, I do want to mention... And again, this is extremely anecdotal and it's just purely based on, on my memory, but it felt like there was not a singular shared team strategy, which honestly I think was a really cool thing, right? So I think I think team strategies, it seemed to me, either were non-existent or they did exist, but were highly customized for the people who were on the team. And I thought that was really cool. So like there were some, and, and, and it's really hard to put your, yourself in the mind of, you know, a coach or a quizzer on a team that you're not, you know, compete, uh, you're not there with, but as a, as a QM looking at how these teams uh, were performing, you kind of got the sense of like, I'm seeing certain patterns that this team seems to follow, but this other team doesn't follow those patterns. They follow a different set of patterns. And both of these teams are doing well, but for entirely different reasons. And that was, that was fascinating. Uh, and I think it was based a lot around thinking through who were the quizzers on their team, what's a strategy that's going to work best for them. And, and, and that was pretty cool. One thing I did notice, um, another, or I, another thing that I noticed was there was a quizzer. This is, uh, a singular example, but I think it's, it's illustrative of a more widespread phenomenon. There was one quizzer who was a last minute substitution. Uh, basically we had a team of two, uh, who was registered and one of the quizzers got on that team, got sick at the last minute and was not going to be able to pers- uh, participate. And of course the one quizzer who was left on the team was like, I, I know I can quiz by myself, but I would really prefer not to. And so we were faced with a little bit of of a dilemma. Like, do we reorder the teams? How do we, how do we do this? And it turns out there was a, uh, a non quizzer who was going to come up and just observe and hang out and that kind of thing. And that person was convinced to join this team at the last minute. Well, they were a non quizzer. They were planning to be a non quizzer at the meet. So they had memorized uh, zero prior to coming to the meet. Well, on the road trip to the meet, they memorized one verse, uh, one verse on the road trip up. 
And that was the effect, that was the totality of their preparation for the meet, other than I think maybe going through the rule book or, you know, at a, at a high level, that kind of thing. And then they part- they joined that team and participated. Well, it turns out that quizzer was actually able to answer multiple queries correctly and earn points for the team. Now, granted, it was all open book. I think there was one case, I heard a report where the one verse came up uh, that the the one verse that the quizzer had memorized came up in a quiz and they triggered on it, but somebody beat them out for that query. So they weren't able to actually respond to it, but they were actually, they recognized it, they triggered on it and they were afterwards, they were saying like, yeah, I actually, I would have been able to get that correct had I triggered just a little bit sooner. I totally recognized it. I knew that that was my verse. Uh, but, uh, they were able to put, they were able to earn points and put point, put points on the board and actually do well for their team because of the open book system. And I thought that was, that was particularly awesome. So it it was just sort of yet again, another proof of the fact that, yeah, you know, you can realistically invite somebody who has basically never heard of quizzing before. You can invite them to a quiz meet the morning of the quiz meet. And they can actually show up, join a team, and meaningfully participate. Granted, you know, just a a, a point here and there. Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, you know you max out after two open books in a in a quiz. So we're not talking about a ton of points, but it's still points that are accruable and placed on the board. And so that was great. I thought that was fantastic. Um, one thing that, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but something that really became clear in IOC is that CBQ, the CBQ system makes it very obvious who memorized the most and memorized the most effectively in terms of like how well they memorize. There isn't really a way to effectively guess or, or luck your way into a better score. So in second age programs, you know, if it's um, who created the heavens and the earth and the answer is God, that's worth 20 points. If you quote two verses off of a reference word perfect verbatim, well, that's also worth 20 points. So given certain scenarios, you can kind of guess your way or luck your way into a score that might hide a little bit, maybe some not not preparing as well as you should have for the meet, right? In CBQ, it's really hard to get away with that. It's extremely difficult to get away with that. You you can revert to open book, absolutely, but you, you're limiting your point differential there. And so ultimately, over the course of multiple quizzes, right, because you can have a one-off quiz here and there, but over the course of multiple quizzes, we could look at the individual uh, averages and say, like, this is highly this is highly informative of who actually spent the most amount of time preparing and i thought that was interesting um because at every level whether you're the quizzer who showed up and literally memorized one verse before you came into the meet or you're the quizzer who's getting four sevens it's clear what you need to do to be able to increment and and go a little bit further now granted if you're getting four sevens routinely across a across a quiz you're pretty much at the upper level and there's not that much further higher you can go but the idea being that it it really expands that range and shows that uh, quite effectively 
And then the last thing that I thought was really interesting, and, and Scott, you might find this very fascinating, there was a team that put together a set of trigger speed flashcards for their team because as a coach, you can communicate with your team up until the point where the quiz or the uh, quiz magistrate calls ready begin. So how do you communicate? Well, the rule book is silent on how you communicate, right? So if you want to communicate via a flashcard versus hand signals versus yelling something, that's totally fine. So there was a team that showed up with uh, trigger speed flashcard. So what they did was they took the uh, query based subtype and they took the translation and their quizzers had memorized NIV and we were at the meet that we were quizzing on NIV, BSB and ESV. And the BSB is pretty close to the NIV. Um, there's, there's some word choices that are different, but the style and the structure is fairly similar. The ESV is more dissimilar. It's not wildly dissimilar. It's not like KJV or something, but it's more dissimilar than say BSB to NIV, right? So these quizzers coming in, having memorized NIV, they they had these uh, the, the these color codes where it was like, you know, green is go really fast and yellow is caution and red is, you know, go really slow. <coughs> and so um, based on whatever query was coming up, the the coach would hold up this card with some sort of color code on it and that would tell the, the the team okay this is in let's say it's a phrase from the esv red 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 slow down uh this is a quote okay green go really fast doesn't matter what translation you're in they're all the same uh this is a finish uh from the bsb yellow you know so there were there were different color codes based on what they were doing and i thought that would and you know, in terms of where that team ended up, I think the team did quite well. So that may have played a part. No, I like that. I mean, it simplifies it simplifies it for the quizzers. You could make an argument that you you want that to be part of the competition that the quizzers have to handle. Um, I don't know that I would care that much. Um, but I mean... Now that's interesting. I remember. M- make that argument because I actually think the opposite. So, so steel man, your side. So, quizzing is about kind of two things, which is your prep and then your execution, and you have to do both. Um, I have witnessed quizzers that are very good at one and very mediocre at the other, <laughs> um, and you have to match up the two. And I remember in internationals where it was question twenty, and a team had it one. And someone on their team jumped and aired and they ended up going to overtime and losing. Mm. Um, And if the coach had the ability to just hold up a card that's red and everyone sat, um, you could make the argument that the more deserving team won that internationals. And um, because and if it had been less up to the quizzers to to know what the scenarios were, um, the less deserving team would have won it. Yeah, fair. Um, So I'm going to take the counter uh, side on this one. So I I, I think I come back to mission, right? What's going to encourage the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses? I think inherent in your statement of the most deserving team or the phrase of the most deserving team, you're talking about like, well, the team that is doing both the memorization and the execution. And that's totally fair. In CBQ, that is still true. You still have to execute. Um, But I don't think the execution is quite 
as important as memorizing or, or to put it another way, I think memorizing is significantly more important than execution in CBQ relative to second age, right? I think in second age, you, you really can't execute without memorization, but execution plays a bigger role than uh than in than in cbq i i still think it's a minority role right so i don't know based on a scientific study i just made up in my head let's say memorization accounts for 70 percent and uh, uh tactics or or execution accounts for 30 percent. i think it's probably like 90 10 in in cbq or something like that and to me i think i i feel like that's a little bit more aligned missionally uh, so if a team memorizes more and does it more effectively, I feel like they are the more deserving team. So the other, the other, the other point of it is um, I like the role that coaches can play where they can actually coach uh, more than just encouraging their team, but they can actually provide strategy, you know, real-time strategy to their, to their team that may help the coach stay more involved, therefore may help the coach be able to recruit more, get the other uh, the quizzers on the team to be able to recruit more, and that furthers the mission there. That may be a I don't know that's bit that's a bit of a stretch um, of an argument there. So that's probably not my strongest argument. I think my strongest argument is is that a ninety ten split doesn't eliminate um, execution as a requirement, but it emphasizes the thing that is our missional focus. Yeah, and I think that's totally fine. I think this is. A preference of mine because I know that the teams that I coached um, they were prepared so well that if I could have I would have opted for no one to be able to take a timeout at any point <laughs> during the meet and I think they would have relatively performed even better than the other teams because they were better prepared and they they knew scenarios and could handle anything that happened um, without uh, anyone else having to manage it for them yeah. Well, speaking of timeouts, there was only one quiz that, that I had in my room where we had two timeouts. Uh, most of the other time, uh, we would only have one timeout and it was usually on, you know, query. It was near the end. It was like query tw right before query 12 in, some, in, I think, most cases, but sometimes as early as like, say, query 10, give or take a little bit. Uh, but it usually we would only have one, uh, timeout and it, it seemed to work out pretty well. I do love, I don't know. I'm, 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 this is, um, I guess maybe a little bit of pride of authorship here, but I really like the appeals process where the QM is free to just figure out what actually happened and figure out, uh, what is the right call and just make the right call. And of course, you know, the coaches have the capability of saying, yeah, we don't think you made the right call. Uh, even after the QM tries to figure out the right call. But, um, so I mean, the coaches still have the opportunity to say, no, 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 hang on, stop. You're, you're still not, you're still making a mistake. But what's really nice about the appeal system is, uh, there were multiple times where I made a mistake, but didn't realize it. And a couple of teams would point it out and I was able to then, uh, reverse a mistake very quickly, uh, and just say, oops, yep mea culpa. I made a mistake there. Okay, great. Let's fix it. Let's move on. Um, and I thought that was, that was, that was nice. All right. So moving on to some bad stuff. Um, so there's just things that I note and I, bad is probably not the right word. Let's call it less than optimal. 
uh, of my observations from IOC. So the first one that comes to mind is that trigger speeds were just often way too fast, way too fast. And they can, and what was shocking to me was they stayed consistently too fast. Um, things didn't change. <laughs> right. So like, I'll give you an example. One, uh, so quote question, uh, quote queries, right? Uh, it's literally quote Acts chapter two, verse four or something, right? Uh, or, you know, some other chapter, some other verse, right? That's literally all they are. And I was trying to speak in a very, I don't know, metronomic manner. I don't know. I don't think I did as well as I could have done in my speaking speed. So were there variations in my speed? Yeah, I think there were. But I was trying to be as precise and as predictable in my speed as I could be. And I certainly was with uh, quotes because with a quote, um, I can look at the reference and stick it in my head and my eyes go down to the lights and I can start saying the, the, the reference. And so when there's a queer or when there's a trigger, I can stop very abruptly. And what ended up happening is on, on most quote queries, and I, I'm, I really do mean the word most here. It was well over 50% of quote queries in my room. They were responded to incorrectly because the trigger happened just before a determining syllable. So it would be like chapter blah verse thir, right? And is it 13 or is it 30? And is it 31 or 32 or 33? They would just get thir, right? Um, and if they slowed, if quizzers had slowed down just a microsecond, well, maybe a little bit more than a microsecond, but just a very small amount of slowdown, they could have uh, picked up those quotes and, and answered them correctly. There was one particular team, uh, sorry, not team. There was one particular quiz where the, there were of, of the quote queries, I believe, and I need, I need to go back to the score sheet to verify this, but I believe every quote query of the entire quiz was one team would err, the second team would err, the third team would pick it up correct. And it would just happen again and again and again. And it felt like, and, and most of the other queries I think were correct. So it felt like quote queries dominated the, the quiz because of course, if, if you get an error on a query, you go to a B or a C and it's the exact same uh, query based subtype and translation. And so, and of course on quotes, the translation is irrelevant. So it was, uh, you, you, I would just see this error, error, correct, error, error, correct. And the, when the, the triggers were happening was consistently right before the tiny fraction of a mouth shape that would have given the quizzer enough to be able to get the query correct. Right. So that's when I say too fast. That's what I, that's what I mean. And were the the teams or quizzers doing this? Did they consistently like lose? <laughs> they did, yeah. The, I mean, the teams that so the team that 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 won the quiz was the team that just slowed down, right? And or had variable speed. I, I'm not sure what was it. So there were there were cases where I mean, like, like take a step back from the the details of a particular quiz or a, a particular query, right? And let's say like. As I explained, NIV, most, most quizzers in this meet memorized NIV. BSB is similar, a little bit different, but similar. And ESV is 
more dissimilar, right? The words are in a different order. It's a, the, some of the words that are used are a little bit more flowery, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a little bit harder to pick out uh, location if you're listening to a phrase from the ESV, right? So, or a prompt from the ESV. So let's say that you're responding to, or you're getting prepared to trigger on a query that is a chapter reference from the NIV, you're probably going to be able to trigger fairly quickly if NIV is your native translation, right? And, and assuming that you've memorized that chapter, you should be able to trigger pretty quickly, you know, a couple syllables, couple, three syllables, and you're, you're probably going to do pretty well, right? Now, you should not under any circumstances trigger at that speed when it is an ESV phrase, right? A, a phrase query from the ESV. You should slow way, 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 way down, right? And I was I was pointing out to people, you know, outside of quizzing, I was pointing out to people like, I don't think you should trigger. If you're in NIV, if NIV is your native uh, translation, I don't think you should be triggering on an ESV phrase faster than the end of the fourth word, right? You ultimately get, um, so on a phrase query, you get six words. Sometimes you really do need those four words. I think sometimes you need five words, right? But, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, ideal risk reward, it feels like the end of the fourth word is necessary. If you jump, or sorry, not jump, if you trigger faster than that, if you're triggering on the third word or even worse on the second word and you're, you're coming out of ESV, like, I just find that nearly impossible unless you've done some memorizing out of the ESV. I just don't, I don't see how you pick up those queries. And I think there was this fear of like, well, if I'm competing against a team that's memorized ESV, I can't wait for the fourth word because they're going to get the query. And I'm like, well, okay, sure. But if you trigger on the second word, you'll get it wrong. And that other team gets an even easier chance to pick up the B or the C, right? So speeding up your query to try to match the ESV team on an ESV phrase is a losing proposition. The best you can do is slow down and trigger at the speed where you're going to get it correct. And if they get it correct, okay, great fine. You, would, you wouldn't have been able to get it correct anyway. And sometimes the ESV team will slow down also, especially if they're going after recognition or depending upon what their strategy happens to be. And you might get lucky and you might be able to pick it off, right? But the worst thing you can do is try to match their speed because the, the vast majority of the time, it will not work out well for you. Yeah, it makes no sense to match someone else's speed if your chances of getting it right are low. Right. Like, their chances of getting it right should be irrelevant to your strategy decision. Um, a couple... Okay, so there, the, way, the reasons in age two that an international's team would jump at a seemingly too fast and irrational pace that I saw, one was because... Um, the difference on, say, a quote question between 2.1 syllables and 2.3 syllables, if you were to win the jump, your probability of getting it right went from like 10 or 15% to basically 100%. And so everyone was fighting over that tiny, tiny range in hopes that they get the 100%. And so when 
when kind of the range of possibilities is you get 20 or 30 points um, or negative 10 and your opponent gets 20 or 30 points, you, you kind of want it to live right on the edge. Um, and, you know, kind of slowly calibrating over time and scenario exactly how which side of the edge you want it to go to. But it sounds like teams were not necessarily hunting for the edge. They were very consistently going three to five percent before that kind of critical amount of information. It felt like it. Like, so, for example, if a if a I don't I haven't done the math. Right. But assuming you're only ever talking about a single query, which, of course, is 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 not the world we live in. We're talking about if you err on the query, it goes to a B or a C. Right. So the number is going to be lower than this. But if you're only talking about the single query, it seems to me that you should be jumping or sorry, triggering at a speed where you will 50 percent of the time get the query correct. Right. So like on a on a quote query. Right. And you're absolutely right. It's entirely about uh, speed. Right. So the idea is there is a sweet spot where there is a perfect point during the recitation of the of the prompt where you have just enough information to be able to figure out the reference. And if you jumped ever so slightly, like one unit faster than that, you would have not enough information to to be able to figure out the reference, right? You would have to guess, right? So granted that's the guessing part goes into a grayscale there, but let's just collapse that superposition for now and pretend it's not a thing. So just for simplicity, right? So theoretically there's a there is a point at which you have just enough information to be able to identify the reference, right? That is the ideal time to trigger. However, nailing that time is not easy, right? Because it comes by very quickly, right? So you have to, there's going to be a certain error rate for where you're timing your trigger relative to that perfect trigger point, right? And that's going to end up creating a normal distribution around that that ideal trigger point, right? So sometimes you're going to be on the left side of it. Sometimes you're going to be on the right side of it. But theoretically, you're going to be roughly equal around that ideal trigger point if you're aiming for the ideal trigger point, right? And you're, you're, you're targeting it, right? So ultimately what that does then, again, with the gray stuff superposition ignored and also pretending that the world is only a single query, you're going to end up in a universe where you're going to get about 50% of the quote uh, queries correct, right? And about 50% where you're going to err on them. Now, because of the fact that we don't live in a world where the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, it's only a single query, we live in a world where if you err, there will be a B and or a C, right? So ultimately, and of course, a, a C uh, quote uh, query is, is a gimme, right? I mean, worst case scenario, the team does an open book and picks up a point, right? So there, there's, there's, there's going to be some point added, Um, unless the team chooses to sit on it because they don't want to burn an open book or something like that. Right. Um, so there, there's very, there's a very high probability that, that some points are going to happen off of a C, right? So if you're sitting here off an a, uh, quote query, you actually don't want to trigger right on that 50, 50 line. You actually want to trigger past that 50, 50 line a little bit right now. How far is a little bit? I don't know, lots of hand wavy. I'm not sure. 
you'd have to figure that out, right? But you want to trigger very slightly after the ideal point because you are going to have this error rate. Uh, you want your error to rate to be below 50% by some amount, right? Now, what, yep. is, the, what is the ideal? I don't know. Uh, is 40% the ideal? Maybe. Is 30% the ideal? Maybe. I, 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 don't, I don't know, right? But somewhere better than 50% is, is what you want. You want, your, you want your success rate to be better than 50%, right? What I was seeing was a consistent 100% error rate. <laughs> so there was a, there was not a, people were not triggering at the ideal point. They were consistently triggering prior to the ideal point, which means they should have slowed down. And what was surprising to me was seeing this happen over and over and over and over again, there wasn't a correction to it, right? So like, I, I totally get like, you you try it out a few times, you experience the fact that it's it's too fast. It's like, okay, great. I need to take the style and I need to slow down a little bit. But people weren't doing that. I was not seeing people slowing down uh, their, their, their triggering on quotes. And that's just the quote. I was seeing this across ESV phrases as well. Uh, or let's call it non-local translation phrases as well. People were jumping or triggering uh, just a little bit too fast and they were doing it fairly consistently. Not every team, but you could tell the teams that had dialed in their trigger speed because those are the teams that were seemingly unconcerned when they didn't pick up an A query or even a B query. And they were perfectly content to pick up Bs and Cs. And in fact, they almost preferred uh, to do that because, you know, especially if you're if you're trying to go after a C query, you just let the entire thing go out and, and go from there. Right. Because what I did, and maybe this is easier in age two, where I felt like I could construct a list of questions that was exhaustive enough for my planning purposes. I don't know if you can do that with the um, almost infinite number of possible way places that a query can start, right? Um, in H3. But I could come up with exact numbers. Like I could say on an H2 interrogative, if you jumped at 2.2 syllables, a computer would get this percent of them correct. Um, and so I could say, hey, if we aim for 2.5 syllables and jump on that reliably and consistently, we will get, I don't know, a computer will get 83% of those correct, um, knowing that as humans, we would get less than that correct. But that seemed to work accounting for the percentage that you err, you don't get to jump on the next question. That seemed to work out to be an optimal strategy. And if you arrive at an optimal speed, which in H3 isn't going to be dependent not just on the query but and your pr preparedness, but the translation as well, once you know the optimal for you, you shouldn't jump faster than that, regardless of what anyone else would do. Right. Um, which means that you don't have to ever think about what your opponent's going to do. Like maybe you will on query 12 and you're tied, you know, and then it's kind of a game theory situation. But in general, for 90% of the queries that you're triggering on, you shouldn't care at all what your opponents are doing. Yeah. And I would um, argue even on query 12, I mean, unless it's like some bizarre Hail Mary and you're just hoping to get lucky, maybe, but it's probably not going to work out for you. Yeah, but 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 as you say, like it might be that scenario where 
if you don't get it, you're going to not make bracket anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so you, go after you don't, it. Yeah. you don't, you don't care about the downside. Right. But, and then that reminds me of the other, the second way that I would see teams consistently jump at what I deemed or what I knew was an unsustainable speed was because they knew that their prep level, if they jumped at the optimal speed for their prep level, they would never win a single jump. And that reminds me of the second reason that I saw teams jump at what I knew was an unsustainable speed. And that was because they knew the optimal jumping speed for their prep level was at a speed that would win zero jumps because of the competition. And so they decided to just jump at the speed that would win some jumps and they were fine with the variance that happened. Now, because age three is a lot less luck-based, there's less chance that you can get rewarded for this. If you're jumping at an imprudent speed to get to get any queries right, you might have to resort to open book a lot of the time, um, which other teams are almost happy to let you have open book stuff if they can get some um, seven-pointers or five-pointers, uh, which is another reason I really like the design of age three, where it's less luck based can i win a jump because the point at which jumps are won is largely um with enough material to get it right <laughs> whereas in h3 it's like it could be that every everyone triggers at a speed that most people could get it right open book um but can you get it right synonymous or verbatim or you know adverse um and it's way the emphasis is way less on just winning or just triggering first which i think is really cool yeah well another observation that i had from the ioc meet is that memorization by and large wasn't particularly strong there was there were there were some teams who came in that we knew these quizzers didn't have a lot of material memorized or, or had almost no material memorized but they came in fully aware of this everybody was fully aware of this and they were there just to have fun and that's fantastic obviously very excited to have you know everybody uh, at all levels be able to participate and we had other teams where very clearly these quizzers were full material and uh were 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 very strong right so we had uh we had one team uh i think it was the new york team was the team that they were planning on sending to uh uh, internationals, uh, CMA internationals. It was a very strong team. And clearly they were at the upper levels of, of memorization and capability. What was interesting to me was that mid-level of memorization. That seemed kind of the mid-level skewed toward the, toward the weaker end of the spectrum. And that was kind of interesting to me. It was something that I don't think was exposed under second age. I think you can get away with knowing less material. If you're in a weaker district, you can end up scoring enough to be able to put you in the, the top echelons of that district uh, in in a second age universe and kind of hide behind that in, uh, not, not intentionally, it's not like anybody's being malicious about this. That's not what I mean at all. Uh, but just the fact that it's it is let's say it's obscured um, that the the memorization strength and I think what ends up happening in in CBQ is you get this phrase or some kind of prompt and um, it's definitely identifiable to a location but the quizzer isn't able to identify the location and resorts to open book and then isn't able to look at the verse up in time and then gets it incorrect right 
that's an indication of of not enough material preparedness, right? And so that was kind of that was a bit on the unfortunate side. I saw that happen a bit too frequently uh, for teams that were there. But to be fair, Axe is a very big book, and Axe is is somewhat difficult to memorize. So I am excited about this coming season, the upcoming next season, uh, 23-24, because we're going to be in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It is, in my opinion, I think it's one of the easiest, if if not the easiest uh, season uh, material to memorize. And it's also really gorgeous material. Now, this is not to say anything negative about Luke. Acts is a fantastic book. It's an amazing book, but there are some real zingers, uh, a lot of zingers in the Gepke year. But apart from the zingers, it's I think it's a it's substantially easier set of books to memorize. And it's a smaller amount of material as well. And you put those two things together. So I'm I'm fairly excited for what next season is going to bring in this regard. Talking about the mid-level teams. Kind of since I've been around a lot of the formation of H3, I'm not really surprised that the like the scoring averages and the points per query um, is not really linear across quality of teams. <laughs> that kind of makes sense, you know? Yeah. Um, like you have to know a certain, you have to memorize a certain amount to ever get um, a query of a point, a certain point value. Um, I don't know if that's three or five or what that level is, um, but it was possible in age two to just you're facing weak teams and you put up a 160, right? Or you just happen to jump on a bunch of stuff that you knew where teams could kind of um, get those. Well, I mean, I think actually it's because amount of information that you get was so important to scoring potential because all the points were the, all the questions were worth the same. Right. But in age three, that's not the case. Like the more information that you get, sure. There's a higher chance that you get some points. Um, but the amount of points that you get is still almost completely dependent on your memorization ability. Right. Right. And it has, it, I mean, the chance that you get zero versus two um, is dependent on a lot of stuff like your opponents and the translation, that kind of stuff. But the, ch- the, the difference between getting two on a query or seven is a hundred percent due to your prep and well, maybe 99% and maybe 1% due to at what point in the query did you trigger and win? Yeah. And I think that's really, that's a very important point and very true. So, um, this leads me to my last sort of note in this regard, observations about the meet, which was that I, I, I wrote down that some teams quizzed like it was 1999, which is my not so clever way of saying it felt like some teams were quizzing as if they were mentally prepared for a second age quiz meet, which is unsurprising because this is the first ever third age quiz meet. So nobody has gone through a third age meet of this level before. And so it's totally natural and reasonable that there were a whole bunch of folks who were sort of mentally locked into a second age mindset, right? This is really, this is not necessarily me saying, well, that's bad, although I think it negatively hurt them, but really more just kind of point out to say, like, I think you will do better if you let go of your preconceptions based on your experience in second age. And I think there were some people who 
started to say like, hey, I'm actually not a fan of this particular aspect of the new system. And what they were doing was really just expressing, well, this is different than Second Age and I actually don't like the change. I'm used to the Second Age thing. And, I, and it's like, okay, that's, that's totally fair. Um, but I think you have to judge Third Age based on what Third Age is, not in so much in, in comparison, uh, comparing to what you're used to, right? So let yourself, um, let yourself be enveloped by what the third age is. And I think uh, if you embrace it, it can be really effective. All right, so with all that said, I, want, I do wanna close with um, some proposed rule 2.0 rules changes, things that, that came up um, either just before the meet or during the meet that were things that, that may find their way into edits in the rule book for version two. So. I'll just kind of go through these real quick and then Scott would love to get your thoughts here. So the first one is the foul section of the rule book in 1.0 needs to be completely rewritten. This was actually the one thing that we had to make an exception on and say, yeah, we're actually going to edit this <laughs> like a, a few days before the quiz meet because uh, I was informed a team that was doing some practices informed me, hey, we found a loophole with how fouls work such that you can infinitely foul without negativity on, say, query 12 to get a query that your team can answer. And um, that was uh, that was not intentional on my part at all to provide an incentive for intentionally fouling. So we patched that up in kind of a haphazard way for IOC just to prevent that loophole. But I definitely want to go back to the foul section and rewrite it. Fouls really should be rare, right? Um, they should just almost never happen. And the idea of a foul is a quizzer unintentionally does something wrong that isn't an incorrect response. They just goofed up on some kind of procedural thing. And so you say, okay, you're fouled this particular query, you redo the query, the rest of your team is still able to participate. And it's not, it's not meant as a punitive thing, it's just more you, you inadvertently screwed up and in some sort of procedural thing. And ideally, what we want is for the rulebook to have as few of those inadvertent screw-up opportunities as possible. We want to make it really hard for quizzers to unintentionally make mistakes, right? So... I need to I need to redo that file section. What is it going to be? I don't know. I just know that it's going to be completely rewritten. All right. So, um, of, but you're yeah. you're still using words like inadvertent and unintentional, which right. you don't want the official to be in the business of us of determining. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's where that's where this whole thing of intentionally fouling to draw out a better outcome on query 12 was uh, so disastrous because, you know, the easy thing would be to say the easy and wrong thing would be to say, oh, well, just have the QM interpret if it was an intentional foul or not. And it's like, no, 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 no. There be dragons. We're not going to do that. Uh, thus why, thus why the foul section needs to be, uh, uh, redone. Essentially the idea is if somebody intentionally fouls, it's like, okay, fine. Um, I don't care that you intentionally did it. The, the negativeness of the foul 
is appropriate for the condition and doesn't provide a loophole. So the idea being that if you intentionally foul or unintentionally foul, it doesn't matter. The, the outcome dissuades both activities uh, and doesn't provide loopholes for people to gain an advantage. Uh, so the second thing is that uh, prompts for non-finished queries, I am considering increasing the length of those to seven. So currently they are at six. So finished queries are at five. Uh, the, the length of the prompts, five, uh, number, uh, five words go into a finish. Five seems to be pretty on point reasonable for finishes because they're all locked to the beginning of each verse. So in terms of prep, in terms of recognition, five seems to work out just fine. And in fact, the vast majority, uh, majority of time, you really only need like two. Um, sometimes three, but five seems to cover pretty much all the use cases or it covers enough of the use cases where maybe you have like one or two verses a, a year where you can't legitimately call a finish query off that verse or something. But on non finishes, uh, typically right now we're at six and I'm thinking about expanding that to seven. The reason being is there were cases where, uh, you know, uh, ESV versus NIV, where you really kind of needed the fourth or fifth word. And so, yeah, there might be cases where uh, rare, rare situations where maybe you need the to go up to seven before they become key. So I'm not sure if I'm going to do this or not. But um, and of course, I was also I was joking with uh, some of the uh, coaches uh, at one of the meals at IOC. I was saying, well, I've been thinking that I want to increase the, the, the rate from six to seven, but of course in this meet, we haven't actually had like a phrase query actually go to all six words. Uh, people tend to, un unless it's like a, a C query, then it goes to the sixth word. So I'm, I'm torn about this. If we do go to seven CRs will still be, instead of CRs being what I call three plus three, where it's three unique words to the chapter plus the next three words, we'll just do three plus four, where it's three unique words to the chapter and then an additional four. But again, I'm not sure if we're gonna do that or not. There was an interesting situation that happened in my room. It was actually in one of the finals uh, quizzes. Um, I forget which one, maybe the first one or I don't, I don't remember. There was only two, but in one of the finals quizzes, a quizzer on a C query got all six words of a, I think it was a phrase query, but I could be wrong, but they got all six words and uh, they identified the verse and they said everything in their translation from that point to the end of the verse. They did it verbatim, I think, and they, they got it word perfect. Um, but there was a word that was not in their response that was not in the prompt because they were responding from a different translation. And I forget the exact translations, but I think it was like, let's say ESV to BSB or something like that, right? And so there was this word that existed in the response of the ideal response from the, from the query that did not exist at the end of the block of words that had the cutoff for the response in their local translation. And according to a strict reading of the rules, they don't actually have to say that word because it's not in their response, right? You, you go from the point, um, the, the QM uh, tries to find the, the most reasonable spot of where they left off and make a cross point over to the other translation and then require everything after that particular point. So therefore we counted the quizzer correct 
However, there was definitely, um, so it was final. So both I and Daniel, the quiz master from room two were trying to figure out how to adjudicate this thing. And we went around with a couple of different theories and ultimately I think we made the right call, but I think there needs to be a little bit more specificity in the rule book as to what's required in that kind of multi-translation uh, response with different word orders and so forth. Another rule and I'm so not, wait on sorry yeah go ahead on, on that one is the quizzer not required to provide all the content in the remainder of the query of after the, the point that they jump of the prompt they're not right so for example if we're talking about a singular translation uh the the i forget the languages but it's basically like the the quizzer has to provide everything that i didn't say right um but in the case of multi-translation, the QM decides where the end point is and connects those two between the two translations. So, for example, if there's a word that exists uh, in the what would have been the prompt portion of a quizzer's local translation, but is it but instead appears in the response portion of the remote translation and they get the full prompt read to them, they actually aren't required to say that word. They have to basically say everything at the point and after the end of the prompt point if you take that point and pull it across translations. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I mean, because the, the, the prompt plus the response in the... What is what is it called? The base translation, right. the default translation, the query translation. Sure. Um, the prompt plus the response is contiguous, right? Yes. The written prompt and the written response. Right. And so, are you saying that at the point, so the written prompt of translation A and the response of translation B um, might not include something from the response of translation A? Well, think of it this way. Let's say there's. Um... Let's say, let's say translation A, and we're just going to say it's the entire verse, just to make it easy, right? Sure, sure. And so, and of course it doesn't have to be, but let's just pretend. And we'll say the first six words of, of that verse make a prompt for, let's say, a phrase, right? And yep. so you've got translation A, and then you've got translation B. There are, um, there, there are words, obviously, in translation B, but ultimately if you go to translation A... At the end of translation A is a word that you can then connect to a specific point in translation B, right? Um, now that when you say the end of translation A, the end of what? Sorry, the end of the prompt. So when you're looking, if you're reading the prompt and it's those six words, yep. you'll find the sixth word. And you may not be able to do it off just that six word. You might have to look at the context of like the word immediately preceding it or something like that. But ultimately you can look at that sixth word and say that sixth word lines up with that, this particular spot in translation B, right? Yep. Um, yep. If I say everything from prompt A the quiz master can determine there's a, a phrase in the rule book that says the quiz master can determine where that spot is in, in translation B. And then everything after that spot is required uh, to, to yep. for, for okay. response. Right now, of course this also happens if it's happens to be shorter than six 
uh, words, right? So for example, yep. if, the, if the prompt is six words and the quizzer jumps, or sorry, triggers after the third word, the same principle applies. It just happens to be a different spot, right? So yep. in translation A, there, let's say there is a word that exists in the response the ideal written response, therefore it's not in the, uh, the prompt, therefore yep. the QM doesn't say it. But in translation B, it exists before that cutover point. So oh. in, in that universe, that word is not required. Does that make sense? Yeah, it seems fine, right? It does seem fine, but it was, we definitely spent more than seven seconds <laughs> figuring out if it was fine. Um, we were, we were kind of going back and forth and I was trying to remember the exact set of rules and so forth. And I think, I think the rule book just needs to have a little bit more specificity of like explaining that specific situation. Now, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not a rule that goes in a rule book. Maybe it's a commentary that goes into a commentary, but yeah, there, I think that needs to be made a little bit more clear. I mean, it makes sense that you can't just drop translations on top of each other perfectly. Right. And if someone is making a determination of where the, the nice cutoff between translation A and uh, translation A prompt and translation B response is, that you might not get 100% of translation B in that prompt plus response. Right. I mean, that it makes total sense. Um I, I guess I can see why it feels weird because because of the translation quote unquote mismatch less I guess is required of you, but not really. I mean, you still had to jump on a translation you were less familiar with and identify it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, we could make the argument in the other direction. We could also say if there is a word in the in the well, I, I'm. I'm, not, I'm too tired to figure out, figure out how to say this, but if there is a word that exists in the response to the prompt of a different translation that exists in the what would have been the prompt of your translation, you have to say that word. We could certainly go the other direction there. I think it puts a little bit more onus on the QM, right, to be able to infer backwards as to what what needs to happen prior to the cutover point. So we could make that the rule. And of course, if a, but even in the current universe, if the quiz master simply says the entire verse, they're not wrong. So if they provide the word, they're not wrong. But I think if they, they skip that word, they're, they're still fine. Right. Now, can you remind me if there's any, like on verbatim responses, is there any full rotation business in H3? There, there, there is, is, right? Yeah, yeah. So there is a full rotation. Now, they, if they, but again, they only have to fully rotate off what is required, right? So if it's a quote or a finish, then yeah, they, I mean, if it's a quote question, obviously it's 100% of the verse, right? If it's a finish, they only have to technically fully rotate off of what was not said, um, and so, Which if, so if they, if they jump on one word of the prompt, it would, the, what is now required is the rest of the prompt plus the written response. Exactly. Exactly. And it's any and the, portion. And that, written, and that written response could be the cutover if you're switching translations is determined by the quiz master. Right. Right. Now, if this all seems very complicated to the quizzer, it, it's probably because it is complicated, but you don't have to worry about it. Just quote the verse and, and you'll be fine, right? So there is never, ever going to be a situation where if you just quote the verse, uh, you will be incorrect, right? So when in doubt, feel free to just quote everything. Uh, now, don't go out of the verse. 
uh, if you're on a quota or a finish, because then you're out of context. But as long as you stay in the verse, you're fine. Uh, it's just that from a quiz mass or a quiz magistrate's perspective, you you don't have to require necessarily everything. However, yes, one full rotation of what is required is required to be correct. Unless, and, and with the exception of if you correct something before moving on, then you are still correct. There was plenty of that at the meet. Right. And I like the way that it's phrased because it makes it clear that whatever the quiz magistrate has already said is locked in as correct. You can't now make an error on it. Right. Um, exactly. While attempting full rotation. But also, um, there's way less um, getting it wrong, right? There's only out of context. And so that's even less of a deal, even if the full rotation required you to restate what you uh, what was already said by the quiz magistrate, even if. Right. 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 Indeed. Um, and, and so all of that is nice where, you know, you don't have to worry about where exactly is the cutover. If you quote the verse correctly, you will get credit. Um, and if it's if it's already been said by the magistrate, you can quote it not quite fully correctly and it won't matter. Right. Um, and, and so. Yeah, we are getting into the nitty gritty from really an official's point of view and people writing the rule book. Um, but I agree, it's not something that a quiz would have to worry about because your task is still the same. Yeah, indeed. So one thing that we were talking about doing is um, the thesaurus right now is programmatically generated. And we were thinking about providing a means by which we could manually expand the thesaurus. Technologically, this is no big deal at all. And in fact, the rulebook is silent on how the thesaurus is generated. Just it, it, it just, just simply describes what the thesaurus is, right? The, the data that, that is the output of the, of the, uh, of the process. So we're, we were encountering a couple situations where, you know, um, there was a word that was said by the, the quizzer, the QM looked at that and said, that really ought to be a synonym and it's not, do we want to be able to manually expand the thesaurus to be able to add that, uh, that particular word. Now, in some cases, I want to really be careful about this because I don't want to expand the, the thesaurus manually to include theologically synonymous words. I want them, I want it to be expanded to include English synonymous words because, uh, the important point of CBQ is we are not quizzing on meaning we are quizzing on the words uh, because meaning uh, can be oftentimes subjective and therefore unfair uh, so uh, we need to be jumping on the words not the meanings so how we go about expanding the thesaurus manually and of course this would be something that would ha be happening outside the quiz meet not not during a quiz you know kind of thing but we would be collecting data during a quiz and saying, yeah, here are these cases where I think the thesaurus needs to be expanded, you know, kind of thing. And then we can we can work that into the system somehow. I mean, uh, that makes sense, because if a, if a quizzer drunk, jumps on something and they say a very clear synonym that just happens to not be in the thesaurus for whatever reason, um, you don't want that to be grounds for them not to be correct. But at the same time. I don't think you ever want the ability for an official to override the thesaurus mid-quiz. Right. Yeah, because because I mean, if if a, if a Cuban can override the the thesaurus mid-quiz, then what's the point of the thesaurus? Um, it's like we might as well just right. just go back to, to like, you know subjective rulings. I hate making slippery slope arguments, but that's basically what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean it and. I could I could even make the argument that it's not slip, slippery slope. It literally is the same thing. Um, 
It's like I can override, therefore I can more than zero times. Uh, and any time that I do that, uh, it's no longer objective. So, right. Yeah. All right. So then, um, another one is, and this, this one I'm, 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 I'm struggling. I'm not sure I like this, but it could be interesting. So one quizzer asked me during one of the breaks, okay, well this quiz meet, we're quizzing on three translations. What happens if there are nine translations? How would that work? Um, how would it work if there were seven or 14, you know, that, that kind of thing. And it was a really good question because I had no good answer. I'm like, it would be a giant mess is, is basically what I admitted. Um, and so we could solve this a couple of different ways. We could simply say, well, we're ahead of a meet. We're going to say what translations are supported, um, and just limit it. We could also, we could just say there's going to be a maximum number of translations in a meet. Uh, I definitely don't want to have quiz by quiz be different, but you could make the argument that maybe we should have a maximum translation per quiz. But again, really don't want to go down that road because then you're going to have quizzes that are non-equivalent and you're going to set up a situation that's not fair for a particular team across, you know, it's, basically a team is going to be highly influenced based on their draw, uh, what kind of queries they're going to have native versus remote. And that makes a huge difference in terms of what kind of points you can get off of things. So, and the speed of your trigger and all kinds of other things. So we want to try to keep the translations the same across every quiz within a meet. So do we put a max on the number of translations in a meet? I'm thinking we probably do at some point. Uh, is that number less than 12? Um, I think it is. Um, I'm not sure exactly where that number is, and I need to do a lot of you know calculations here to figure that out. So then what happens if you have a situation where you're going to have more than that maximum number of translations based on the registrants? What do you do? Well, one idea that I'm playing around with right now is the idea of what I'm calling, and these are terrible labels, but I'm just going with it for now, but a majority translation versus a minority translation. And I'm not, I don't really know what those words mean right now, but let's just say like an alpha and a bravo, right? So an alpha translation is a translation that a lot of people are memorizing for some definition of a lot, which I know is subjective, all the caveats apply. And a, and a, uh, a Bravo translation is one where maybe it's only like one or two quizzers or something across the entire meet. So if you're talking about a universe where you only have two or three translations, I don't see this as a problem. But if you have a universe where, let's say you've got NIV, NASB, and then you've got NIV 1984, and you've got NASB 1995 right? So two different IVs and two different NASBs. So a total of four translations are, is it, is four translations too much? I don't know. Um, it might be, but let's say for, for, for argument's sake, let's say that four translations is too much that the maximum let's say should be three, right? Let's just, let's just say, well, then how are we going to accommodate four trans these four translations? Well, what we would do then is we would have this uh, majority minority uh, translation set where the current NIV and the current NASB would be the majority translations. And then the minority translations would be the 1984 and the 1995. And so what this would mean is quizzers would still 
always only need to respond in their immediate local translation, whatever it happened to be across those four translations. But queries would only be generated from the the primaries, from the, the current NIV and current NASB. So ultimately what that would mean then is if you're on the 1984, very, very, very likely your current NIV prompts will be immediately recognizable or very nearly immediately recognizable. So are you at a disadvantage? I think a minor one, but easily overcomable, right? So I'm playing around with this idea. I'm sort of play testing it in my head. I haven't even written simulations for it yet, but I'm, I'm wondering if that might be something we consider for the future. So Scott, what are your thoughts on this? I think generally speaking, if the, the proportion of queries in your preferred translation is different than the proportion of those quizzers in the meet, then I wouldn't consider it to be fair. But I understand that there are downsides if you have, say, seven translations and each of the seven are represented in seven of the 12 queries, and then it is random among the other five. Right. I understand that, you know. Um, so what is what is the current? Is it like, I mean, I, doesn't it change per quiz based on who the participants are? No, it's it's um, it changes per meet based on who the participants are. So um, the way it works currently is uh, every translation of every quizzer that's registered for the meet uh, is uniquely set into a list. And then per quiz, that list is randomized and then repeated. Right. So if it's you know, ABC, it'll just be ABC, 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 all the way through the quiz. If it's BCA, it'll be BCA, 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 all through the quiz. Um, those distributions along with, so the, 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 I call it the distribution. The distribution is the query distribution is a combination of the translation and the base query type. Uh, quiz distributions are published ahead of time. Uh, so people can see, okay, well on query six, it's going to be from the ESV and it's going to be a chapter uh, reference query, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so at the moment, there is no maximum number of translations. So you could have 20 translations, right? And even if we were going to do something where it's going to be based on who's going to be in a quiz, but I, I think that's bad because again, it's not going to be fair. But if you were going to do that, you could right. have as many as nine translations in, in a quiz. And right. of course that would just be horrific for, you know, uh, if, if that, if it, if it worked out that there were nine in that quiz and in most of the other quizzes, there were like one or two, then that quiz of, of nine would just be horrific. And that's just another illustration why I think quiz by quiz within a meet, it needs to be the same. Interesting. Tell me if you agree with the statement. The optimal way to set up translation queries is such that every quizzer is asked the same, per the same percentage of queries in their preferred translation. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if that's mathematically possible with three teams and nine quizzers in a quiz, but the opportunity exists, right? So, so there are 12 opportunities in a, in a quiz for, I mean, a, a absent B's and C's. There are 12 opportunities for you to be asked a query, right? 
uh, therefore you should get the same amount of opportunity against the translation. And of course, with B's and C's being the same, it, it just, it, it, it equates. The, the idea being that you are not disadvantaged if another team uh, uh, triggers too fast. Uh, so those, those kind of queries just don't disappear on you kind of thing. If, uh, so based on your opponents, you're not negatively af affected based on your opponents, uh, in that regard right now, if your opponents are just really, really strong, yes, it's going to be harder for you to get, uh, queries, uh, because of their, of the competition. But the idea is, is if they're, if they're performing poorly, that can't diminish your, that won't diminish your earnings opportunity, right? Um, the flip side of that, or the, or similar in that regard, you're, you know, if I'm memorizing the NIV, I'm going to have, regardless of the draw, I'm going to have the same opportunity to answer NIV queries as anybody else and ditto for ESV uh, at the same mean. The problem here is, well, what happens when you have five translations that starts to make right. it, that may, that makes it problematic. Yep. And I can see that. So maybe it's something where. One translation is fine, two is fine, three is fine, four is fine, but five can't be fine because you can't have an equal distribution of those five across a query, or sorry, across, across a quiz. So maybe that's the answer. Maybe four is the maximum. Right. Yeah. Anyway, like I said, I need to think about this a lot, but it's, it's something that, that's going to come up later over time. Um, so, I mean, in PNW next year, uh, next season, we're looking at uh, NIV and NASB and possibly ESV, right? So we could be as many as three, but we're very likely going to, we're going to be at least two and possibly as many as three. But over time, there are some folks um, who might be joining who are memorizing the NKJV, and so that's wildly different than, say, the, the ESV to the, to the NIV. So that becomes a fourth translation. I think that's okay, but at some point it starts to become unwieldy. And I think, I think at five, uh, it starts to become unfair. So we'll have to figure out how to deal with that. All right, very last thing, very last thing here is there was some discussion, and I think there's some valid points to this. There was some discussion that we've got three, basically, we've got three levels of difficulty for responding to queries if you ignore things like add a reference and add a verse, right? The base, not they're, they're not base, but the basic quiz or selected subtypes of open book synonymous and verbatim, right? So obviously open book is the easiest. Obviously verbatim is the hardest because you have to have every word in order, uh, you know, word perfect. Verbatim is the hardest. And then synonymous sits between the two of those things. And I think it does. The argument was made that synonymous is actually not directly in the middle, but actually skews to being harder than 50%. And as a result, maybe we want to soften for some clever definition of soften the requirements for responding synonymously. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're not really sure. There's a lot of ideas, right? But it could mean something as simple as you're not required to provide anything beyond the sentence that you are responding in for a particular verse. So if a verse is like, 
you know, uh, two sentences and the prompt starts somewhere in the first sentence, you're not required to continue all the way to the end of the verse. You're required simply to continue until the end of the sentence that you're in, right? So maybe that's one way of softening the synonymous. Another way of softening might be things that are more subjective in nature, which of course means I loathe them, but I'm trying to be open to the idea. Um, so things like saying, well, certain words may not necessarily be required. Uh, maybe we can skip more words than, um, you know, if a word is repeated, I, I'm not sure. There might be other clever ways that we can soften synonymous to make it a little bit easier. So Scott, what do you think about that? Why do we want the difficulty of those three base subtypes to be linearly spaced? I don't think we care necessarily about them being linear, but the argument is that there is a big enough jump between... And I'm not sure I agree with the argument. I'm actually not sure if I disagree either, but there's a big enough jump between the open book and the synonymous or that may cause quizzers who are uh, not particularly strong on the material to not go after synonymous. They may just sit at the open book stage. And ultimately, if that's true, that potentially is countermissional because we want open book to be the gateway to get them to memorize. But if the step, the next step after getting to open book is a very big step, then they may just sit, the quizzer may just sit at open book. And that's, I, I don't want that. So the theory of softening synonymous is to make that first step that, 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 well, not the first step, the next step after open book a little bit easier to get to. So it's not so much about making it linear, but just making it easier to get to. I would agree that the gap in difficulty between open book and synonymous is larger than the gap between synonymous and verbatim. I would agree with that. Okay. Now I'm trying to, I'm trying to think through, cause there's already way more difficulty options for a quizzer to choose and move between than in H2. The fact that there is way more doesn't mean that there shouldn't be more. Right. <laughs> or that, or that the gaps should be different. Uh, but I think there is already more. And I think, it's hard because we've drastically created um, the barrier to entry is so much lower than it was in H2 to scoring any points at all. Right. And I don't know. I, my guess is that the vast majority of quizzers who score points in H3 at the open book level but scored nothing in H2 – or but would have scored nothing in age two, would not be incentivized much at all by the creation of an an easier step up from open book in age three. Yeah, that's possibly quite true. My my theory here is a quizzer, and and I could be wrong here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna steel man both sides of this. The theory is that or my theory is that I, that I currently believe is that a quizzer, if they memorize a verse, is going to memorize the verse. They're going to memorize the entire verse. Now, they may not review it. They're, they may forget part of the verse. That's certainly true. But a quizzer doesn't necessarily sit down and memorize part of a verse. Um, well, I mean, I guess they do before they go to the whole verse. But ultimately, I think when quizzers are studying, they're, they're memorizing verse to verse based on the unit of a verse 
as a whole, right? And recognizing that, like, well, if it's a very, very long verse, you know, three or four sentences or something like that, I might memorize part one, then part two, then part three, then part four or something like that. But ultimately, like, I I would, wouldn't have considered myself, like, having memorized the verse until I memorized the entire verse, right? So in that regard, the difference between if I were to soften synonymous such that I'm leaving off, say, sentences that are not prompted for, I don't know if that actually moves the needle very much, right? Because ultimately the quizzer who has memorized the verse has actually memorized the entire verse. The flip side of this, and and this is where I think I could be wrong, I think the flip side of this is in review, right? If you memorize a verse in totality, but then don't review it, if I give you a prompt from one of the sentences, you'll probably remember the rest of the sentence based on the prompt that I provided, but you may not necessarily remember a, you know, the first part of a sentence that was at the very end of that verse that then trails into the following verse. Uh, unless you're reviewing. So if you memorize the verse and then don't review, then yeah, I could see there being the softening version is harder, is, is possible to get. The hardened synonymous is more difficult to get. So in that regard, if I did memorize the verse, didn't review, and I attempt to do this non-open book, if I attempt to answer or respond synonymously, I feel like yeah, that's definitely worth more than the open book. Um, and I certainly, that's the thing that I want quizzers to do. I don't want quizzers to come into quizzing and start at open book and then stay there. I certainly want them to come into quizzing and, and if they're only able to do open book, then yes, come to quizzing, start with open book. But I don't want you to stay there. I want you to be encouraged to attempt to memorize. And so that's where if, it, it almost feels like analogously here, this feels like CBQ's version of the unique word rule in, in a sense, right? So the unique word rule in age two or CMA age two, which by the way, is not a thing anymore. It, it was, it was nuked. Um, it was voted on to be nuked. I forget I forget exactly when that becomes a thing. Um, I think it may be next year. I'm not sure exactly when it becomes a thing, but, but anyway, it was, it was voted on as something that, it, that is, that is to be nuked at some point. Um, but in, in that case, it was this certain words that only happened once they were fairly arbitrary, but those words had to be responded to non-synonymously. I feel like maybe in a, the current CM, uh, CBQ way of synonymous, the, secondary sentences at the very end, if not prompted for, are somewhat analogous to the unique words. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I think this one's tough because, I don't know, I think there's there's a lot of kind of murky stuff, each of which doesn't, I think, matter a ton. You know, I think trying to soften synonymous might add more complexity to the definitions and selections for a quizzer which i think is a slight negative i also don't think the creation of something that's slightly easier would move the needle in motivation much at all Hmm. um and so i think you're dealing with fairly small pros and fairly small cons sure yeah so i mean maybe it doesn't make a ton of difference but um if i can do it straightforwardly in an objective way maybe it helps people make the leap a little bit better yeah 
Right. Like, I mean, it's to the end of the verse. I mean, verses are different length. So, I mean, there's already going to be opportunities that are easier. I don't know. Like, it's hard to think through the type of quizzer that's getting open book would be able to get synonymous um, if it's not to the end of the verse. Um, I don't know. It seems like a really small sliver. Well, yeah, but I mean, you're, you were also one of the top echelon quizzers. So, I mean, steel, steel, steel man, this from, you know, perspective of somebody who was, a, you know, an early memorizer or a weak memorizer or that kind of thing. Like if I give you a prompt, you can, if you've memorized the verse, you can probably finish out the thought of that prompt. And so if that sentence actually scrolls past the end of the verse that we're currently in, you're, you're probably just going to keep going until you get to the end of the sentence. But if, if, if it's a verse where the sentence ends and a different sentence begins and trails into the following verse, I could see a situation where, and I, I saw this at, at, at IOC even where a quizzer will get up and say that one sentence over and over again. And of course I can't prompt them. I can't tell them, there's more <laughs> keep going. Right. Um, they just think they're saying the, the, the sentence wrong. So they're saying it over and over again. And then the time elapses and then I'm saying, yeah, you were correct here, but I just needed these next four words or something. I think that's the, the use case that I'm talking about. Sure. And I would absolutely agree that for that type of quizzer, the single largest component of difficulty is amount of material. Yeah. Um, because the times that they're winning triggers is, usually going to be on stuff that they know they know at that point. Um, and so whether they have to get another eight words correct synonymously versus 20 is a huge deal. But I don't know if allowing them to get only eight versus 20 changes the motivation level. Mm. Oh, yeah. OK, I see what you're saying. Right. And it's all and, and this this goes back again to the motivation level. What's actually going to get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses? Which actually leads me to the uh, a final thought, um, and then we should probably close the show. One of the things we were we were talking about in a, uh, a you know some adults were hanging out uh, discussing and arguing various different pros and cons of of different things was uh, how do we how can we actually measure against our mission? How do we because I mean if our mission statement is most number of people memorizing the most number of verses. Well, most number of people is really easy. You know, like how many people registered for this meet versus that meet, right? Or the, how many people registered for meets in this season versus that season. So that's super easy. Um, we can get a very objective number there and say, okay, great. The, the, the more that number goes up, the, the more we are, um, the more we're doing well. So then how do we measure the second part? Um, most number of people memorizing the most number of verses. How do we figure out the verses that people are memorizing relative to any kind of change that we make either in the program, the rules, that kind of thing. Um, I'd love for there to be an objective way. Maybe it's purely based on the scores um, to be able to say like, that's one. No. Way to, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's probably not. S- scoring is relative. It like, is. It, yeah. Quizzing is set up to have constraints. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. So, I mean, it's, it's like, how do we, how do we come up with that kind of metric and then, or what's the heuristic to, to estimate it. And then if we can figure out, cause I, I don't necessarily care if it's, I, I don't care about the absolute number. I care about the relative number. And I, 
I don't even really care about an accurate relative number. I just want an estimate would be fine if it's in the ballpark, right? So I can measure. So, so if I get a relative number with some error bars, to me, that's good enough. So then how do I go about doing that? And we, we were, we were talking about various different ideas there, but ultimately one of the big things, I, I wouldn't call it a problem, but one of the big things about all quizzing programs is it's very difficult to A-B test a lot of this stuff, right? In practice. I think in principle, you can A-B test it, but in practice, like you have to allow a rule change to sort of germinate for a while to kind of sink in and propagate, mentally propagate throughout quizzingdom, and then measure the results of that over time. So it's you almost need rule changes to bake and sit for a while and then measure over longer periods of time. And a lot of that, I think, comes down to like very long periods where this is not something you you definitely can't do it, you know, meet to meet. And I don't even think you can do it like season to season. I think you're, you, you have to measure in sort of like factors of like four, five, six season lengths of time uh, in phases because there are there are other sorts of waves and phases that happen, uh, you know, naturally that have nothing to do at all with the rules. And to top it all off, I actually think the rules are not, I don't even think the rules are a majority case for what drives growth. I think the rules can get in the way of growth, right? I think, I think bad rules can suspend growth. But once we get close to some... Nash equilibria ideal for a rule set, I think there are all these other factors that come into play that actually are the the critical path for for growth, right? So being able to figure all that stuff out and measure that stuff in a way that is not just, well, I like this rule better than that other rule. Um, Cause like, I really don't want us to get into that, that trap. Um, I'd like us to be able to have some kind of heuristic to be able to determine what's ultimately going to be more Promissional than other options, but how we get there, I, 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 yeah, I haven't figured that out yet. I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> okay, well then, on that bombshell, we will close the uh, episode here. So, if you have heard anything that you have any kind of questions about, or if you have any, if you've heard anything that you have any queries about, we would love to hear from you. Uh, please email us your queries uh, or your questions at iq at cbqz.org. If you're in Canada, that is iq at cbqz.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Inside Quizzing. And uh, keep in mind, if you have any kind of disagreements about anything that we have said, either in practice or theory or steel manning or anything, very, very, very much want to hear from you. Uh, Any kind of disagreements get head of line privileges uh, in terms of our mind share. So definitely want to hear from you. So with that said, thank you all who participated in IOC and uh, thank you all listeners. And thank you, Scott. Thanks to our listeners. And thanks to Griffin for co-hosting. 